Hatfield, McCoy, Team Edward, Team Jacob, they will just always fight with one another. But two groups that will definitely always keep fighting are McDonald's and Burger King. We got any Burger King fans out there? Anybody like Burger King and willing to say that? Nobody likes Burger King in this room. One guy back there, Sean, you like it? Good for you, man. Anybody like McDonald's? We got a few, yeah, we got a few McDonald's, a few McDonald's ones. Did you know that on National Peace Day, Burger King sent a tweet to McDonald's and said, hey, enough's enough. Why don't we join forces, make the McWhopper, which is 50% Whopper, 50% Big Mac, 100% disgusting, it sounds like. And they said, let's do it together for charity. But that wouldn't even unite the two of them, okay? These are groups that are just so antithetical, always fighting against one another, that it doesn't seem like there will ever be any resolve. Well, in the theological circles, there are two groups that seem to always be butting heads, and they butt heads over this specific chapter that we are looking at in the Bible tonight, Ephesians chapter 1. And that would be groups called Calvinist, and that would be groups called Arminian. And those two always battle back and forth under the subject that we're going to be talking a lot about tonight. But as you are looking at Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to write down Romans eleven thirty three to 36, because I think that really sets in context what we will be studying tonight in Ephesians 1, Romans eleven thirty three to 36. And wherever you fall on the theological spectrum, I'd hope you memorize these verses because they are fantastic verses for you. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable his judgments, how unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him, to him, and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Those are theological verses that you want in your mind. Because when you have those verses in focus, what it tells you is this. That from everything, whatever you're talking about, it is designed to give God the most glory possible. And if you know the book of Romans, chapters 1 to chapter 11, what is he talking about through that whole thing? The plan of salvation. Chapters 1 through 3, why man needs salvation, what salvation is. Uh, Chapters 4, 5, 6 through 8, justification, sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11, God's faithfulness to his people in Israel. And at the end of that, his plan of redemption, he says, God's got to get the glory for everything. So know tonight that as we're going to talk about these subjects, you might come in, and I don't know your theological background at all, you might be the complete opposite of what I'm about to teach you right now. What I would ask is that you just hear me out the whole time, and uh, hopefully it will be very helpful and practical for you in your marriage. And secondly, I tend to be an excitable guy, get excited about a lot of things in theology. If I come across with a little bit of passion, know that it is not uh, aimed or directed at anyone but just excitement about what I believe the truth of scriptures to be. And when we approach the scriptures that way, I think we have every hope and every opportunity to come together and make sure we understand what God is saying. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Just beautiful verses of scripture right there, speaking to us of our benefit of receiving the grace of God. And it mentions in there the idea of election or choice or predestination. God choosing those who he is going to save. So up front, before we start uh, unpacking the doctrine of election, let's just make this caveat. Make sure you understand that the doctrine of election is not what a person needs to believe in order to be saved. It's a very important clarification right there. We don't go out to non-Christians in the world and we don't preach the doctrine of election and hope they get saved because of that. What we are commanded to announce is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what all Christians should be passionate about, speaking about the glory of Christ, dying on the cross, rising again three days later, taking away the sins of anyone who would believe in him. And that's good news right there. So the doctrine of election is not what is saving someone. It's not what they have to believe to save someone. It's the gospel that they need for that. And number two, if you would just put this down, election, whenever we're talking about this, I hope it never comes across that that eliminates our responsibility or that that causes our choices to be meaningless because it doesn't do that. And we're going to get into that tonight and the next couple of weeks. So just know that up front as we begin to have those things, those caveats there are in place. But if you notice, Paul begins this letter to the church at Ephesus to say everything that we have has been given to us by a gracious God who has blessed us in Christ and he did that by choosing us before the foundation of the world. So let's get it down number one this way. Let's let God's gracious election eliminate entitlement. Let God's gracious election eliminate entitlement. Because wherever you fall on the theological spectrum, you at least have to admit that these passages say God chooses. So when we say God chooses, we got to say that choice should cause us to be pretty humble people. Because the choice can't ever be really based on anything that we do. It's got to be based on the grace of God, which our text says has been lavished upon us, has been given to us without measure because God is so kind and so loving and so merciful. That is a gracious God we serve. And so when we approach anybody at any point in time, we should be the most humble people on earth because we've been given every blessing, not based on what we've done, but based on a gracious God whom we serve. And so over and over again, that idea of entitlement must be eliminated from our minds. The Bible speaks of it this way, boasting. I boast as if I deserve something. When, when I boast, we don't use that language now, it's, it's as if I'm entitled to something. And the doctrine of salvation in every aspect of it should eliminate us from boasting at all. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1 just to see this. All throughout Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Based on God's calling of his people, it should do this for us in our walk with God and in our interaction with people. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 26 to 31. Listen to what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence 
of God. Now, we can take that number, number of different ways, but the first way is when you stand before God, you will never boast that you are there because of something you've done. It's because God chose you. But if I believe that God is everywhere, God is present everywhere, and I'm always technically in his presence because John 14 says he's taken his residence up inside of us with his spirit, always in his presence, I should never be boastful so that no human may boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So from every aspect of our salvation, it is God choosing to let us know that it is not about us, but about him who's shown us gracious love. So here's where I say that the two different camps are going to differ. One is going to say that God chose based on his love. And I think that that's taken from a reading here in verse 4 and 5 where it says, in love he predestined us. I'm trying to stay very close to that. I believe I'm accurately representing the other side when they say this. God, because of what he knows, all-knowing, looks down the corridor of history and chooses people based on their choice of him. In essence, he looks and sees, oh, that person will respond favorably to the gospel call, so I will choose that person and elect based on their choice. And that's how they would identify the doctrine of election. But I think that that goes against a number of different principles in the scripture. First of all, write down Acts 13, verse 48. Acts 13, verse 48, which is just a beautiful scripture, really helps us to understand this. Acts 13, 48, which says this, all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a great way to put it. All those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice it does not say the opposite. All those who believed were appointed to eternal life. But the passive, perfect, participle, which just means something that happened in the past, God appointed in the past, and those people he appointed, well, they ended up believing. So that shows us that the scriptures are viewing God's choice as the primary thing, the first thing, the only thing that is mattering in the relationship. Not the person's choice, but God's choice, okay? Secondly, if you think about what we read so far here in Ephesians, does it really make sense that Paul's going to go for 11 straight verses praising God for his electing grace if that election was based on somebody choosing him first? This doesn't really make a lot of sense. It would be like this, okay? Uh, we've got a lot of new people to thrive. We're so glad that you're here. I think this year is going to be an excellent year. Um, so just to clue you in on a few things between my wife and I. She's a, the best lady in the world. I can't believe I'm married to her, but she just has horrible taste in movies, okay? She just she has bad taste in movies, okay? Most of them involve dancing or singing or teen or high school or musical in the title, and it's just, it's things I don't want to see, okay? She just likes those types of movies. She doesn't like the other types of movies, right? The good movies, I would call them. The good movies that have plot and, you know, intrigue and all that stuff. That makes a good movie, right? Those types of things. But from time to time, since she's a great, great wife, she'll watch movies with me. But you know what she hates is to be confused on the plot. So my wife, beyond a shadow of a doubt, anytime we go to watch a movie together, always goes to Wikipedia first and reads the entire plot of the movie. So going in, okay, if, you were to, if we would have taken her back in the day to go see, uh, uh, what's that, Sixth Sense? She would have known that the dead people were include, you know, Bruce Willis. If, that, if you haven't seen that, sorry, I just spoiled that for you. 
But she would have known that, okay? So let's go back there, okay? We've already made fun of M. Night Shyamalan, but that's a good twist in a movie, right? That twist right there, okay? The sixth sense, uh, I see dead people, we realize that he's a dead person, and everyone's like, wow, what a great movie, okay? So it would be like this. I take my wife to go see that movie for the first time. We're in the theaters together. And she beforehand has read the entire description and knows what's going to happen. So she goes and he says, I see dead people. And my wife turns to me and says, oh, hey, it's, you know, it's Bruce Willis. First of all, I'm going to be really mad she just broke that to me. But then imagine if I said this, wow, sweetie, that is so incredible that you figured that out by reading it. That's so incredible that you went and read the description and you knew it. I can't believe that you were able to read that and know that and then come up with that. It really wouldn't make a lot of sense for me giving her a lot of praise for her just knowing something and then saying, oh, that's, that's so incredible. The person I need to say that to is the person who wrote that movie, M. Night Shyamalan. I go to him and say, hey, you are the one who's orchestrated this great script. You wrote this great thing. You knew everything that was going to happen and you did that. Not my wife, just because she knew that was going to happen, gets the praise for that movie, but the guy who wrote it. So think about that in the doctrine of election. If somebody says to you, oh, God knew that that person was going to respond, why would he really get a lot of credit for that? Isn't that just the same as my wife trying to take credit for the movie that she just knew the description of? Seems to me that there's at least a little bit of an analogous situation. Because here, Paul is saying every credit must go to God But in the other aspect of it, if I play a part that God sees my choice, I can at least take some of it. I can at least say I responded positively, but here all the credit's going to God, okay? So I think you got to deal with that if that's your view of election. Another thing, if you look at this, how often is Paul trying to stress that it's not due to what human beings are doing in a certain historical time? He's saying I chose them before what? The foundation of the world. I'm doing this in eternity past, okay? This isn't me trying to think forward and what's going to happen in the future. This is about what's happening in the past, before anything's created, before the foundation of the world. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. You'll see this uh, same idea. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, I think. We'll find out. 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm 97% positive. That is the verse I want to, 2 Timothy 1.9. Yes, 100% positive now because I see it. Okay, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Guys, why would we ever assume that I could put into that because of my choice in reception of the gospel, why isn't it just that God chose to love me? We got to make sure that as Paul is stressing in numerous places in his writing, that this is before the foundation of the world. This is before we're talking about what human beings are doing or any type of thing like that. It is all because of God's grace. Finally, uh, I think you've got to deal with it either way. Because the reason why people don't want to maybe take the view of election that I'm saying is in the Bible right here is because they think, well, then what about the people who are not saved? Doesn't God get blamed 
for them not being saved? And my answer to that first would be this. In the other view, it doesn't get God off the hook as well. Because if I, in the other view, have God seeing that this person will respond to the gospel, so I choose them, but I see this person not responding to the gospel, so I don't choose them, God's still got to be on the hook for saying, why didn't you do anything when you knew that person wasn't going to respond? So in both cases, we still have to answer the question, why didn't that person get saved? So it's not really getting God off the hook for anything. What we need to say is what the scriptures, I think, are saying right here, and that is God choosing this, not because of man's will, but notice how many times he said purpose. God's purpose, verse 5, purpose of his will. Uh, Verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, making known to us the mystery of his will, verse 9, according to his purpose. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's God's purpose, not man's. That's the way God is choosing to do it, not us. And when we come to the scriptures and we take this high view of God, I think it really helps us understand that we are the recipients of something that we don't deserve in the slightest. And that should eliminate all entitlement from us. Now here's why I think some people can get scared about that. They think, well, giving a God like that complete control is a very scary thing. Right? If there's a God like that who controls the world like that, that's a scary thing. And you know what? Knowledge and control like that in the wrong hands is a very scary thing because somebody can abuse it. Uh, I was reading an interesting article. Uh, who remembers the game show Press Your Luck? Remember that game? What was, that? What was the phrase? No whammies. No whammies, no whammies, no whammies, no whammies. Stop! And then that smug little whammy bar would come right on there. And I hated those things. And I, they, they came by and they always took the money. There was a guy who uh, ended up watching the show, really must be just a, just a gem to be around, just a great personality, because he watched it endlessly, 18 hours a day, and figured out that there was a pattern on the show. It had like six constant frames that it would rotate through, and if you memorized it, you would always know the next frame would not be a whammy, and you could stop it. So the guy went on the show after memorizing that, knowing everything, knowing everything about it, he did it, 40 spins in a row, I think it was, without getting a whammy. In, ni- in 1980, I think he had $100,000, many trips, and no one could figure out how he did this. He had complete knowledge and control of that game, and you know what? He used it to his own advantage. If you read the article, he's a pretty bad dude, okay? This guy, uh, when he was younger, uh, started a business in the Better Business Bureau, uh, applied for the license, got it, and then fired himself to collect unemployment, Okay? That's how bad that guy is, okay? He would go to different banks, and he would open up checking accounts that offered, you know, like 100 bucks, wait a certain amount of time, shut it down, go back and forth, and try to take money from banks. He was ways that he could figure out to use systems to better himself, okay? So when someone has knowledge and control like that, and they're a bad person, that's scary. But ask yourself this question. If there is a God, and there is, the scriptures tell us, that would go to the point of sending his one and only son to die for your sins that you didn't deserve, that you deserved hell for, don't you think you could trust that God to set up a system that would be ultimately merciful and ultimately righteous? Don't you think you could trust that God? I think you can. I think the scriptures say you can. Because of what we have in Christ, every time we come up to something in scripture that we say, I don't fully understand this, but God, I know your character, then we have every opportunity to say, how dare I ever question you, God? 
Isn't that where Job was? Job 42? Uh, I've heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eye sees you. I repent of dust and ashes. How dare I question who you are? This is what we got to do when we come to God because he's blessed us with everything. Now, why does this matter for marriage? Okay? This matters for marriage when you are at home and uh, you've come home from a long day at work, dads, and you just want to sit on the couch. That's all you want to do. Your wife has something for you to do. The kids got something they want you to do. The dog out there, if you have one of those, has something you want to do. And everybody is literally and figuratively barking at you, okay? They want your attention. And you get super frustrated. I know you do at dads out there. Until you get to, I hope you have a chair in your house. I have a section on my couch that I just love. It reclines perfectly. Everything's smooth. My body contours to it. It's just great. You just want to get there and you just want to veg out. And you feel, I deserve this. But... If I study passages like this and I walk into my home with this mentality, you know what? I'm going to go to heaven one day. And it wasn't because I really did anything. Ultimately, it was because God, God chose me and chose to let his son die for my sins and give me all of that blessing. I have all of that because I did nothing. Can I sacrifice just a little bit more for my family right now? Well, I hope that would be the mentality that you would adopt, not an idea of entitlement that says, I deserve this, but now I've been given so much grace, I've been lavished with so much grace, now let me extend grace all the more to others. That's got to be the application of this. Let God's gracious election eliminate entitlement, okay? Let me show you another, another idea. I think people wrongly think of the doctrine of election, and they think about it this way. I think we've got a slide up there, Okay? They think about the doctrine of election this way. They think mankind is uh, trying to get to heaven to be with God, and God, because of his view of election, is telling man, no, I don't want you to come in. Just kind of like a bouncer, like, no, I didn't elect you, and no, I didn't elect you, and no, I didn't elect you. Man's striving to get into heaven, and God's saying, ah, I didn't elect you, so you can't come in. That's probably a false view of why some people really hate this type of teaching. But as we're going to find out next time, Things aren't so good for humanity. In fact, if you flip to the next slide, I think this is really the correct view of election. If you look at this picture, this is mankind really on the path to hell as soon as they're born. And that's Romans chapter 5. Mankind is born in sin, commits sin, goes against God, and God is saying, hey, come to heaven. All who would come to heaven, I'll let you in. But nobody is going after him. Let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 for you. And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the situation you find yourself in before salvation. And that is every person in this room who's a Christian. You were born into that situation, wanting your own way, following your own path to hell. And if God didn't have election, you wouldn't go to heaven. Flip to the next slide. It's like this. Because of election, you will turn when the gospel is presented to you. If God didn't choose you, you wouldn't respond to the gospel. You see, the, the doctrine of election deprives no one of heaven that should be there. You understand that? Nobody deserves to be in heaven, so election is not keeping anyone out that should, rightly so, be there. But it keeps a multitude of people out of hell who should have been there. And when I think about it that way, I really start to understand that election is not this 
you know, mean doctrine of God picking and choosing you to get out of here. In love, he sees people that are chasing their sin and says, I choose you. I love you. I, I want you. And that is the, the view of election that I think we should have. Maybe one more illustration to just try to, to drive this home. Sometimes uh, we, we see this doctrine and uh, we think, uh, oh, we think, uh, oh, this is bad. What about my responsibility to believe, okay? This is a door frame. Let's call this the door frame to heaven, okay? I wanted to build a stairway, but I didn't want the comparison with the song. So it's a doorway to heaven. That's a musical joke for those fans out there. This is a, the doorway to heaven. And if you notice up here, John 3.16. And that's the verse that everyone should know, right? God sent his son that whosoever would believe him is not going to perish but have everlasting life. That is on the door to heaven. And that is the gospel call that goes out to everyone. Everyone who hears the gospel has a chance to repent because of the goodness and loving kindness of God. But anyone who responds to the gospel, and you must respond. It's not a robotic response. You, get, you must respond. You must repent. You must believe. We'll talk about that next week, what that looks like in Ephesians 2. When you respond, you walk into the doorway of heaven through John 3.16, and then you see the other side. And as you walk in, you turn around and you go, oh, Ephesians 1.4, I was, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. See, it makes sense in hindsight when I look at the scriptures that way. It's not the fact that uh, I didn't have to repent of my sins. It's not the fact that I didn't believe in the gospel of God. I had to do all of that. That's the entrance to come in. God has ordained the ends, me getting into heaven, but he's ordained the means, the repentance and faith of Jesus Christ. So don't think that the doctrine of election means you don't have to respond because you do. And we'll talk about that more next week, okay? Um. But the text, we have a lot more questions, not a lot of time. Um, the text continues to go on to something great. We read all of Ephesians 1, right? Go back to Ephesians 1. This leads to questions that people ultimately have. Well, if this is God, and this is his salvation, and this is the way he works, why do I have to do anything, right? Why do I have to evangelize? Why do I have to read my Bible? Why do I have to do any of this if this is the type of God who I have who's this in this control, Okay. Notice what Paul does in verse 15 after talking 14 verses of the doctrine of election. This is his first statement after talking about election. What does he say? For this reason, okay, because of what I've just said to you, especially verses 13 and 14, but the rest of that paragraph right there, okay, one sentence in the original language, because of all that I've said to you about God's electing love, I'm going to thank God and I'm going to pray for you. That is his response to the doctrine of election. It's not saying I don't need to pray. It drives him more to pray. If this is the God whom I love, who's in control of everything, why wouldn't I pray to him? Why wouldn't I go to him? Why wouldn't I ask him what he wants me to do? Because he's got my best interest in mind. So let number two, let's get down this way. Let God's gracious election motivate you to godly living. Let God's gracious election motivate you to godly disciplines or living godly disciplines we should pray listen to this paul for this very reason because i heard of your faith in christ jesus and the love you had for all the saints i do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in all my prayers so he's driven to pray and give thanks to god because of his electing love that's the natural response we should have to this doctrine it should drive us to these disciplines that we should do each and every day listen if you realize that all you have is 
because of God's grace, why would you not call out for it more and more each day? Isn't that what Hebrews tells us to do? We have a great high priest that allows us to go into the throne of God and ask for mercy and grace in our times of need. Now let me ask you the question, how many times a day do you think you need the grace of God to help you live a godly life? And if it's not all hours of the day, then I need to talk to you because you should be up here and not me. We need the grace of God every single moment of our life. If Colossians or Hebrews is correct, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, why would we not go to him? Why would we not ask him to guide us? So let this drive us to it. Okay, then people say, well, why evangelize then? Two scriptures to write down. We don't have time to turn there. Two scriptures. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.10. 2 Timothy 2.10. Which Paul there says this language. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Which is a crazy statement. But that lets him know that he's going to pursue all things in the scriptures because there's elect people out there that God wants saved and he's got to go preach the gospel so that they'll respond. Second one, Acts 18, verse 10, where God gives Paul the motivation to go preach the gospel because he has many people in that city. That's why we do it. And finally, um, we need to live a godly life because of this. We've got to live a godly life because of it. Write down 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10. And there it says, Uh, The beginning, his divine power has granted you all things, and it talks about all that God has blessed you with. Verse 5, it says, because of that, you must pursue uh, self-control, love, knowledge, all those different things. You must add to your faith these things, and at the end it says why, so you can confirm your calling and election. See, it's this idea of electing love of God that motivates us to pray, motivates us to evangelize, and motivates us to live a godly life pursuing him. That's what the scriptures are telling us. So guys, let's not use the doctrine of election as something that's going to say, well, then we we don't have to do anything. Let's say, let's go attempt everything because we know God is in control. The electing love of God. C.S. Lewis is a great writer. You probably read some of his works. And in the sixth installment of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there was a a segment where there's two little girls, I think, and they're they're talking. They're in school, and they said, man, we don't want to be here. We wish we were somewhere else. And one of the girls said to the other one, well, hey, there's this place called Narnia. And if we call out for Aslan, uh, he'll come get us. So they start calling out, Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. And as they do that, some bullies come and chase them. Uh, But Aslan ends up coming and responding to their call. And when they get there, this is the conversation uh, that they have. As they walk through the door, they're transported from their world to Narnia. And they encounter the great lion Aslan, who tells them that he called them out of their world for a special task. One of the girls replies, nobody called me or her, you know, it was us who called for you. And Aslan replied and said this, you would not have called me unless I had been calling you. That's a great way to put the doctrine of election. We will call out for God, we will strive for God, but none of that would have happened unless he did that for us. And if that is the case of us in our Christian walk, then how much more should we be grace-filled, humble people as we live in this Christian life? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to look at your scriptures like this. I pray that you would receive all the glory from this teaching and from everything that we do, Father, because from you and through you and to you are all things. Help us to have a great night of discussion, encouraging and challenging one another. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.